So welcome to our European Digital Health Policy Panel at this year's Convitex um, Symposium. Um, digital transformation of healthcare and data-driven medicine are becoming increasingly important for many societies and their economies. Governments are trying through policies and regulation to balance interests, to create the environment for business to, su to succeed, but also to protect citizens' privacy and strengthen trust. Let's have a look at Europe with its 500 million citizens and one of the largest single markets in the world. How do Europeans feel about health data sharing? What are their governments? What is the European Commission doing to ensure that their citizens and economies get the most out of the digital health era? My name is Michaela Zeman Monteiro. I'm a physician and I've been working in the digital health space for about 10 years. I'm presently working in Lisbon as a Chief Medical Officer for Digital Transformation at Portugal's largest private healthcare provider, COOF. And it is my pleasure to host this exciting panel. And I'm absolutely thrilled to welcome three amazing speakers that are highly respected experts and leaders in the European digital health space. We will hear about the European health data space. What is it and what can be expected from it? They will share with us very interesting insights about to which extent European citizens are willing to share their data and what are important factors in gaining that trust. And we will learn about Germany's efforts to leverage digital health through German, to the German Digital Healthcare Act. So now I welcome Sara Markameki from Finland, Deepak Kalra from the UK and Stefan Schuk from Germany. I would now kindly invite our speakers to introduce themselves to our audience. So Sara, Ladies first, would you like to start? Sure, thank you so much, Mikala, and uh, lovely to meet you all. Um, my name is Sara Malkamaki, and I work in Citra, uh, which is the Finnish Innovation Fund. Um, it's a public think, do, and connect bank that always looks 30, 40 years ahead and plans the future for Finland. And uh, there I'm really working on this fair data economy and promoting the use of health data in Finland and in Europe. Uh, and the project I work for at the moment is Health Data 2030. And I've been actually working with health data uh, for the past five years, and uh, that is my ex expertise. I, I really love the health data ecosystems and business models, and I think that's shortly about me. Thank you, Sarah. Thank you. Deepak, would you like to? Yes, thank you very much, Michaela. Hello. I'm Deepak Kalra and I'm the president of the European Institute for Innovation through Health Data, which is a not-for-profit multi-stakeholder organization in Europe that helps to promote better value from health data for all. Uh, my own personal background is I was a family doctor in my early career and migrated through a rather strange love affair with health information into academia and I've spent over 25 years in electronic health records research, working mostly at a European, but also at an international level. And then five years ago, we created this institute so I can continue to have a great deal of fun on the health data topic. Thank you very much, Deepak. Stefan. Yes, my name is Stefan Schuk. Uh, I'm the president and acting board member of the German ES Association, uh, DGG, DGG. And I've uh, similar uh, as Deepak now roughly 25 years 
background in, in digital health, both uh, on a German, but also on a European level, 20 years as chief medical officer of, uh, of ETEL, and also with an international uh, dimension, since I have some links, for instance, uh, to HIMSS for quite a while. Um, what I will report you today relates mostly to my, uh, my work with uh, many policymakers in Germany, where I have been for many years uh, the coordinator or uh, secretary of a working group um, jointly run by the Federal Health Ministry and the, the states, the German lender, uh, which do the German uh, legislation and also the funding of the German healthcare system. Uh, and this is what I will report uh, to you later. Thank you very much. We are really curious about uh, what we are going to learn with you. So let's start then. Deepak, would you like to share with us your knowledge about the European health data space, please? Well, that's very kind of you. Thank you very much, Michaela. Uh, I'm going to just share my screen and then hopefully you'll be able to see my slides. I'm going to tell you about the European health data space and in particular, uh, the topics that I've been involved in working with many colleagues, uh, which will start off actually by explaining the health data uh, as a concept in Europe, how we see it, and then I'll move on to this thing called the European health data space, which not all of our audience may know about. But let's just start that collectively, we are now very ambitious about how we want to use health data. If we think about the individual level, the individual patient or perhaps the healthy citizen, we have a lot of areas in which we want to take advantage of health data, whether it's to monitor the status of a person, to ensure they have good continuity of care, that we can track care pathways and clinical workflows, but be more active and give real-time feedback to clinicians and to patients. We want to practice personalized and preventive medicine all using health data at a way in ways in which we've not up to now done so using clinical decision support and artificial intelligence as the latest areas of innovation. But we also want to reuse this data at population level, uh, not only to look at things like how healthcare providers are performing, but to look at quality and safety of care, to optimize our care pathways on the basis of real world evidence to improve algorithms to look at safety monitoring and also public health issues and topics. Of course, at the moment, really in our minds, COVID-19 and how we're using population level intelligence for planning uh, and sometimes for, for more sort of urgent interventions. And then on a big data landscape, often across borders using big scale data, we want to learn more about disease course and treatment. We want to innovate in the medical device sector, in the medicine sector. Of course, development of AI needs big data, personalized medicine and biomarkers do, drug development, disease understanding, and so on. So our ambitions are huge. And if we look especially at the right-hand side of this slide, the question is how can we scale up data access in order to achieve these objectives now in a faster and cost-effective way. Right across Europe, there is massive investment 
in infrastructures to try and achieve that. And on this slide, you see a scattering of logos and icons. They may not be familiar with all of you in the audience, but I just want you to feel that in Europe, it's a really busy space. Countries are investing in infrastructures and there are projects at a European level investing in infrastructures, whether it's near to life sciences type infrastructures like Elixir and the Open Science Cloud, or whether it's near to clinical data side and observational data like EMF and Eden, uh, all of those areas are actively building environments to allow big scale data. The commonest architectural approach to achieving this is known as a federated architecture. It's where the data are living in their own locations and we analyze them remotely. I've taken the following slide from one of those infrastructure programs called Eden. And it's a nice slide because I think it's, it's actually very clear. If you look on the left, you see an imaginary uh, hospital or a healthcare organization, or it could be a registry that has in green all of its own data ecosystem. And in the middle of that, you drop a blue rectangle called a local data warehouse, where you map the data from its local environment into a common data model. And you connect that and others to a central platform where the researchers are able to execute a research query. The query is sent by the platform to each of those data warehouses where there is a processor that will run the query and just return the result set back to the platform, which consolidates the data and sends it back to the researcher. The great benefits of these architectures is that the data remains local at source. The, the fine-grained patient-level data is under the control of the green zone, not the blue zone. They can choose what they share, they can choose what they make available, and they can change their mind later if they wish to. It's much easier to implement good practices in data protection using this kind of architecture, which makes it very popular in Europe. Now, the European Commission, building on all of that activity, is now proposing something even grander at a European scale. And it's called European data space. And although today we are talking about health, in fact, there are plans at the European level for a data space in other sectors like transport and agriculture and manufacturing. But I confess we are excited by the health one, so I'm going to stick to that topic and say that we are excited by the innovative ideas of the Commission to pull together a networked environment in which data can be scaled up at a European level. Now, it's still on the drawing board, it's still in active consultation, so there is no actual definitive diagram but what I'm showing you, which we've developed with colleagues in a project I've been part of called Digital Health Europe is a concept model where you have something, a common European health data space, and then you connect into that, you plug into that, some of those federated architectures that I've described, things that are already moving patient summaries across Europe, an area of growth of the European medicines regulators, uh, rare diseases have a platform at a European level, so that can plug in uh, life sciences architectures, but also some of the national 
e-health infrastructures and research infrastructures might be able to connect into this and create a common environment with perhaps a common access portal. So these federated networks then can support continuity of care, they can support the regulatory environment, such as safety monitoring, and also new research. And then there are actors who today do not normally have their own federated architectures, who can connect into this and become users of it, but they might also contribute their own data. We know from speaking, for example, to the pharma industry and the medtech sector, they're interested in being givers and receivers, bi-directional data relationships with the European health data space. And that's the exciting vision that has captivated so many people in Europe. Now, this will only succeed if we have harmonized data governance, if the rules of engagement, the rules of access are harmonized, if there is interoperability, if there is trustworthy data quality, and of course, there is work to be done on building infrastructure, building blocks that will act as connectors to these different networks. And that is the exciting European vision that I need you to understand, and I hope to also be excited about. Now, when we've undertaken over the last 12, 18 months, multi-stakeholder consultations about this vision and said, well, what are the success factors? What will make this succeed? We've ended up with seven topics that people have said need investment, need focus. And the first one, the universal one, is we need to raise the digital literacy. And I think I would add to that now the data literacy of all stakeholders. Of course, patients and citizens need to buy into this vision. They've got to understand what's happening. But many health professionals need to understand the value of the data they're creating, etc. We need to see the value of real world evidence being raised and understood by all of the stakeholders in the game, because we need to increase ICT investments. We need to look after the culture of data creation and data reuse. We must have better interoperability. It is still today a poor uh, level of adoption of the standards that we've all been part of making, but actually are still not out there on the streets making data fly between systems, and we need that to happen. We've got to show to society how the data are beneficial, how using data delivers societal value through better care, safer care, innovations, through public and private organizations. That's a landscape we've got to sell. Now, I'm not going to go to all of these points, but what you do understand is that there are critical success factors. We're working on them. We're on to it. Now, what about people, patients and citizens, healthy citizens and patients? When you speak to them, and we've done this in focus groups about the European health data space and the opportunity, what do they say? Well, what they actually make clear, forget about the vertical bars, just look at the axis. They want more access to data so they can manage their own condition, track their state of wellness and fitness. They want to use their health data as a tool to view personalized medical information. Don't show me stuff that's not relevant to me. Use my record to show me things that are relevant to me to know. I want to learn more about conditions. People would actually like to connect with other patients who are very similar to them. What does very similar mean? It means you look at the EHR, you look at the EHR of others, 
and you match make people into communities with similar disease profiles so that they can actually share meaningfully and usefully. People want to use their data so they can talk more meaningfully and constructively to their professionals and have engaged conversations and be more empowered. That's actually a really exciting vision if you think about it. And that is what we are seeing and that's what's starting to be stimulated in Europe. But I do want to end a little bit more on a cautious note, if you don't mind, because as we go on this slide, we've also got to be proactive in tackling some important challenges. Because when you go from left to right on this slide, the public understand less about why and how their data are being used. The users are less familiar actors to them, people they don't think of as being players in the data space. The results are not necessarily very close to the patient themselves personally, and it takes time for those results to materialize. So the distance between when the data are accessed and when something of benefit arises can sometimes be years. And people don't always feel they have much choice as you go from left to right on this slide. So we've got to, and this is now my last slide, Michaela, we've got to just say, how do we reach a point of societal acceptability to this, because we have in Europe, as I hope many of you know, very stringent data protection regulations that we don't resent. We do celebrate those, but we have to live with the consequences of those as well. We also know that clinical research brings benefits and that many patients are in favor of the outcomes, the benefits that come from data. But the trouble is we also know that the, that the hype about our general data protection regulation creates a climate of fear in the public sometimes, among data protection officers and chief executives sometimes. And we've got to resolve that by having greater transparency about how we use data, how we safeguard data, and what those benefits are. And so I feel, Michaela, the challenge that might come up in our panel discussion is how do we find that balance between the rights of individuals and the benefits of society. We want both. Can we get both? Thank you very much. That's the $100,000 question. <laughs> so <laughs> thank you very much, Deepak. So we are going to discuss this a little bit further later on. So Sarah, um, please share with us um, your insights about how do Europeans feel about sharing their data? What does threaten? What does frighten them, and uh, what uh, what what helps to create trust? Sarah, please go ahead. Happy to do that. So, uh, actually, what Nicola already told you that I'm going to talk about is the European willingness to share their data, and what do they really expect in return? So, there's always the sharing of data and expecting something in return, and uh, I'm going to show you results from a variable survey. Uh, Citra conducted last year and also touch upon another survey uh, that studied Europeans' attitude towards the use of personal data. Okay, let's keep going. So, why do we want to talk about citizens' willingness to share their data? We quite often really focus the discussion on the registry data and less focus on the personal data, my data, so to call. So let me start by showing this slide, which demonstrate well who creates data in the future. 
uh, while data from the professionals and systems is growing there uh, and growing all the time, data from the individuals, which is the green line, is growing exponentially. So in the future, our personal data will have a tremendous impact in our health and healthcare, and even more than we think at the moment. So how is the adoption of wearables among Europeans? Uh, as I told you, Citra studied the use of these smart devices and self-measurement, as well as people's attitudes towards the data produced by these devices in a wearable survey, uh, which was conducted in four European countries. So Finland, Netherlands, Germany, and France. And that was done last year in the summer and more than 4,000 respondents took part in it which meant about 1,000 from each country. So half of these respondents currently used different kinds of activity tracking devices. Uh, that's, I think, fairly quite a lot. And the solutions used most for measurements are applications included on our smartphones. So 38% uh, mentioned those. Also, activity trackers and smartwatches were used and were quite popular, and uh, some other uh, smart devices and smart rings as well. But smart rings were only with 4%, so more on the activity tracker side and smartwatches side. And the use of these devices has really increased, especially during the past two years, and, and measurement is further increasing. So it's getting really popular, and almost fifth of the respondent really started just using these devices in the last six months prior to this survey. So it's, it's really upcoming, so to call. And what do people then most commonly measure with uh, these smart devices? Uh, you can see here that the number of step is, steps is clearly the most popular measurement. So two out of three respondents from Europe said that they count their steps with these devices. And of course, the calories and heart rate were also mentioned and by approximately half of the respondent. Uh, sleep and weight uh, by more than one third, so it's getting a little less. But when we think about these results, there's are all well-being measurements. We also ask, like, if you measure associated with the medical conditions such as blood pressure or blood glucose, but those were measured much less commonly. So just be keep in mind that the well-being measurement is really up and going. And for many of the responders, the use of this measurement resource was already part of their everyday life. So nearly half of them really reported that they can make use of the data they measure every day or nearly every day. So they use it very actively in their lives. And third of them said that they use it a few times per month and only 5% said that they don't make use of it at all. So they don't use the results. So I think it's really encouraging that people use the results. And in my next slides, you can see even more uh, interesting results because those who currently measure their well-being data feel that the data is very useful for them. Here you can see that a total of 40% of the respondents said that they had really become motivated to do more exercise. 90% had adopted healthier eating habits and 19% took more responsibility for their own well-being and also 17% learn to listen to their body uh, well. So if we just stop 
for a second, I think these results are actually quite amazing. And it shows that the well-being data measurement has enormous potential to prevent diseases in the future. So are Europeans willing to share their data and with whom then? So uh, more than half of the respondents would share their data with their own doctor or nurse or show it to them, of course. And 43% would be prepared to share their data with research organizations if it were directly or indirectly beneficial for them or them others or, or any, anybody else, basically. Um, the number is, of course, uh, diminishing a bit when we go further. So pharmacies was 40% and personal trainers, 37% and healthcare service companies only 25. So going to the red. But what really struck here is that only 18% of the respondents from these four European countries would be prepared to disclose their data to insurance companies and pharmaceutical companies. So this is something that maybe we discussed later in the panel, how, how this balance is uh, where, where citizens want to really share their data. And I also mentioned that we also had to think, what do people expect in return? And it's clear to say that some kind of value, always some kind of value needs to be provided back to the people who provide the data. And um, in this study, uh, we can see that the motivation for using smart devices and for self-measurement would really increase a lot by somehow, by strong privacy protection. So 68% uh, mentioned that, and people also really value that the services are easy to use or start using, and they can get access to their own data. So this is something as you can consider giving value back. So those, those things were mentioned in the survey. So here I have actually brought results from the another survey that I mentioned, Citra did a couple of years ago. And this, this survey studied European attitudes towards the use of personal data in actually in the same four countries than I mentioned before, the variable survey did. So the same four countries, uh, but in this survey, more than 8,000 respondents took part. So the double amount uh, and from 2,000 from each, each country. So from these results, you can see that 8% of the people would be really willing to provide access to their health or genetics data if they were offered extra services or individual service. That is the value would be given back. 12% if the data would be used for public interest purposes, uh, for example, healthcare. 14% if they were paid for it. 23% um, if the information used would be used for scientific research. That's quite a low number, but uh, actually it seems we're here a bit of an exception. So 38% would give their data for scientific research, so that's very popular in Finland. So, um, but overall 20% in, in Europe and 30% uh, of the people were not willing to provide or allow access under any conditions uh, when we did this survey. So in the same survey, we really asked also if a lack of trust in service providers prevents people from using digital services. And here are the results. So in average, 40% of people strongly agreed or agreed on it. 
Um, here, the Germans were most suspicious with 48%, uh, and uh, the lack of trust were actually highest among managers, senior salaried employees, and uh, between the 25 to 45 year olds. And this just really shows that the lack of trust is a big problem. And this is something we need to discuss uh, today as well. So what can we learn from the results? First of all, uh, well-being data measurement has an enormous potential to really prevent diseases. Trust is a must. That's my second point. So building and maintaining trust is really essential. And we need to base our business and new innovations on trust and build services in a fair and transparent, user-friendly way. And here you may ask now, how, how can we do that? So, well, there's of course many ways, but what we got out of another survey, we did the use of digital service results, uh, where five important factors which, which increase trust over service providers. And those were at least first, the service informs clearly how my data is going to be used. The terms and conditions are clear and quickly absorbed. That helps. Uh, of course, they, people want to delete all their personal data if, if they have if they want. So the service provider uh, has the information, though they, they need to be able to delete it if they want it. Um, they want that they can accept or decline the selling of their data to a third party. And uh, if they get clarification of what information the service provider has about them, that also helps to build this trust. And um, we also asked that people thought that a similar labor such as fair trade is very familiar to us, a fair trade coffee or, or something like that. You have a label in, in, in the bucket and, and you see that it's a fair trade. Such similar thing like fair data label could be a great addition here. And my last point here is that um, in future healthcare, more data is really generated by individuals outside of the healthcare systems. So let's take that into consideration when we talk about building uh, health systems and, and healthcare and, and our health in the future. And here our vision really is that the future healthcare is person-centered and data-driven. My data, my personal data is part of the healthcare system, the decision-making process. Uh, a person becomes really an active co-architect of the health and new digital services. So integrate that in there. And every person has this full transparency over what happens to his or her data. That's it, rise to shine. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much, Sarah. I really liked trust is a must. So, uh, so let's go ahead so that we have a little more time to, uh, some time to discuss at the end um, because time is running. So Stefan, could you please share with us what's happening in Germany? Good, just stealing the screen from Zara, but it seems to please work. Please do. Okay, so um, I gave my piece now the title Digital Health Boost through legislation in Germany. Um, and I think you have to know that uh, Germany has now since um, three and a half years what is called uh, a proactive health minister, and we just uh, and since the, we will face new elections very soon, uh, people of course put up those articles uh, doing some violence. What what has happened 
over time. And um, I've read that uh, he has put forward um, 40, 40 laws or 40 pieces of regulation uh, in these years. So uh, something uh, is happening. So that's why I use the word boost. So let's, so let's now go to it and ah. So where, where does Germany stand? Um, it's not on the slide, but uh, there's uh, looking from Europe, uh, there, there um, are these European comparisons and Germany actually has a tradition uh, to rank uh, as one of the worst adopter of uh, digitization in healthcare. And, um, but it's changing now. So what I put here under assets um, uh, lists what's there, which may not be fully connected, but which are the building blocks that uh, can be used to build a connected healthcare system. So we have uh, already quite a bit of digital uh, hospital EHRs and a lot has been done to digitize all the paper records digital Im imaging is a must. We have uh, reimbursement procedures in place, digital and telehealth, um, of course, now through COVID, uh, but is relatively easy to use and is in use. But we have this barrier that there's a lack of integration, particularly between healthcare sectors, but also between information systems. We do not have like lifelong EHRs. We have a lack of data-driven care. So what uh, Deepak has explained to us. And also uh, apps and mHealth are not uh, very well established with a link to the healthcare system. And there's something in the German healthcare system we have to understand. Maybe it's not too um, dissimilar to the US. Um, the specialist care is dominated by office-based specialists and many also of those practices work single-handed and are not necessarily networked. So on a high level, our digitization initiatives, where do they go? Um, so as I said, the ambulatory sector needs to be connected. So we have a secure network um, being rolled out and it's now mostly complete um, spending ambulatory care hospitals and pharmacies. It's a highly secure infrastructure uh, uh, based on hardware connectors, at least so far. Migration strategy is on the way. Uh, we see currently now the service rolled out for emergency data management, medication plan, secure email, and finally, um, even faxes will disappear from the health system and they are not legal anyhow. Um, and so our newest pieces will be um, an EHR like demonstrate in more detail, a secure messenger based on the interoperable matrix protocol, then digital therapeutics called DGAS in Germany, digital nursing apps, the DPaaS, and uh, a lot of measures and enabling secondary data use. So that's the starting point and what's going to happen. So my focus here is on the legislation. So let's look at these um, seven pieces of legislation, regulation here, which define the roadmap. Um, 
the main title was given a visit to the healthcare act and it's from the end of 2019. It has been prepared by two other uh, laws that have been started to build the infrastructure. And um, this strange uh, legislation here, the Appointment Service and Supply Act, has actually introduced um, uh, strong disincentives. That means that if you, if people do not comply and, in, and install the service, they will uh, have uh, reductions of their funding. Uh, so this is the starting point. And now we have, let's say, three content elements uh, that will really be uh, built uh, the services. Um, the Digital Healthcare Act has started uh, to define the digital health applications. And so it's supported by the Digital Health Applications Ordinance uh, of April 2020. I will explain in more detail. Then to uh, bring more digital data into the hospital sector, we have now a strong funding program defined in the Hospital Future Act, um, which is in, in, uh, in force since September 2020. And uh, regulations allow around the electronic uh, health record are in this uh, two um, newer legislations I'm going to explain in a moment. So, <clears throat> so, so I do it now in three steps. First, we will come to the digital health applications. This is a picture which, of course, looks a little bit complex, but have a look in the center of the, of this, of the page. You see here uh, a traditional paper prescription as it is being used in Germany. So indeed, at the heart of the process, there's a paper-based description and you could say, okay, doesn't look very digital, but that's just temporary. So uh, the real trick is uh, that there is, a, there is a process which uh, involves the manufacturer who brings this digital therapeutic um, application in, in the market and it is, approved by a process I will come to in a moment. And uh, health insurance is going to pay for it. So the prescription, uh, so it's really prescribed like a, a drug or something else, um, is going into the system. A, a barcode is generated and this actually... Um, Sorry, Stefan, we have about seven minutes left, just to let okay, you know. Yeah, yeah, okay, mm -hmm. I was afraid I was too slow. Uh, this will put the, uh, the service in, into action. And, and so it's uh, worldwide the first service, which is a real paid uh, mobile app. Um, so quick uh, look then at, at, at the process. Um, the um, allowance to the reimbursement system is done through the uh, German Federal Agency uh, for Drugs. Um, there's an application procedure and um, the service has to be, or the, the app has to be a medical software of a lower risk group, which means uh, class one and 2A in Europe. Uh, it has to um, provide evidence for some positive care effects and then it will put for 12 months by a preliminary admission in, in, into the system. And um, it has then to prove itself whether it's useful. And uh, after this time, there will be price negotiations 
to find a fair market price. So currently we have 20 apps that have been approved, uh, 15 of, of them preliminary and five uh, permanently already. Um, so just uh, a quick highlighting on, on what are the, the principles. Of course, data protection is a must, safety uh, as well. But the interesting and tricky thing is here to prove medical benefits or positive effects on healthcare. So now I jump uh, to the Hospital Future Act, um, uh, second piece uh, in the system. Um, in, in, the, in this new legislation, there have been uh, um, 11 domains have been defined um, that can bring about a fruitful pilot projects or implementation projects uh, to constitute digitization in hospitals, something like a patient portal, uh, healthcare records based on voice recognition, of course, better cyber security, telemedicine, closed loop medications, and other. And uh, these pro these are, have been bundled together as a as a program, and they will receive uh, significant funding uh, from the German healthcare system. Um, so there are these, uh, and to prove that the funding has been spent well, there will be also a digital maturity assessment. And uh, actually HIMSS uh, is part of a consortium that has been chosen, which is now called Digital Radar in German. And there will be a verification process where the hospitals to really improve uh, by implementing those uh, new services. So um, in the end, um, this assessment will only be part of the story. There will be other assessments, uh, but hospitals could lose 2% of their annual funding. So it may remind you of the Meaningful Use program in the US, where uh, first good things were introduced, but there were also then financial disincentives if it didn't work. Um, so now finding back the way uh, to health data and mobile platforms. The, the German uh, electronic health record, which has been a subject to the newer legislations, uh, it's coming on a mobile platform. So you see here uh, a demo application provided by Gematic and the data can be integrated. In two minutes. I'm very sorry. It's always the last one who, who is um, very sorry. It can, it can be integrated into the health records uh, seen by doctors. So there will be a closed loop system. Uh, there will be copies of um, medical findings uh, in this health record, and it can be shared with everyone who is looking for the patient. Um, so you see here the, uh, the, the steps that this uh, electronic health record will take. And you see here that in the level three um, in 2023, sharing data for research purposes is, is part of the plan. And uh, from 2024, uh, there will also be a directly integrated option for, uh, for supporting cross-border ear services. Now, how can this be meaningful? I mentioned already the Meaningful Use Program, and you find something here now which is a little bit inspired uh, because also Meaningful Use in the end builds on semantic interoperability. 
So here now in Germany, there is a system being established which builds on so-called medical information uh, objects. In German, it's simply MIO. Um, and it has started with simple, simple things like the vaccine vaccination pass, maternity pass, or childhood passes. And those are uh, being now um, def defined semantic interoperable objects uh, which are reusable. And this builds a way to sharing the electronic health record data for research. So the last piece I'm going to show to you is now the, uh, the medical information object, uh, which has, is built alongside or along the, the plan, the international standards for the international patient summary. You see this here on the top left. And the international patient summary, which has, of course, also um, special speciality um, clinical data. It uh, will define the way to including those speciality, speciality clinical data in, into the system of medical information objects and hence into this uh, electronic health record that can be shared. So in the end, um, there, there's a clear strategy now to, to arrive at uh, meaningful health data. Uh, which which can be which is under the control of the patient, uh, which helps uh, the patient to in his health literacy, and which on the other hand informs everyone involved in the in in the health process uh, to be informed to share data and last but not least to arrive at data driven medicine. So here I hand back to you, Michaela. I'm sorry for making it a little bit long. No, uh, Stefan, thank you very much. And I want to apologize, you didn't make it long. I think um, uh, this is always uh, when you are the last in such a panel, <laughs> then you you have to <laughs> cope with yeah, the yeah, I, uh -huh. Good. So, yes. Uh, or I will stop, otherwise you, everyone sees a black screen. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> yeah, so thank you very much. Um, and. I, maybe I, we have time for a, for for one question, uh, and I would would ask you kindly if you could give your you uh, you could give your 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 perspective of it. Um, so we see that this is all very complex. We have a lot of stakeholders. We have harmonization, interoperability, uh, uh, but in the end, it's about people, and uh, uh, and it's about patient centricity and citizen centricity. Um, what is your idea about how, how can we deliver this patient or citizen centricity in digital health and in data sharing? Sarah, would you like to just give us a statement? Well, I think it really starts from putting the patient in the center. As, as I put up in from the questionnaires and all that, it needs to be integrated also in the service design into uh, getting the data from the patient, what was increasing rapidly, exponentially. So we need that data more to in our systems and uh, in well-being services. So, so really putting the patient in the center. I think that's that's the most important and start having the dialogue with them. Uh, wonder why they don't trust, for example, the pharmaceutical companies or, or don't want to share data with somebody. Start a dialogue, start to make a difference because it's important to share the data for the industry as well as research, as the benefit of society. So 
Um, I think those are a couple of things that I could highlight. Right. Maybe so gentlemen give can patients continue. a voice. So give patients a voice and increase literacy so that they can understand and be, um, yes, active in this process. So Stefan, what do you think about it? What's your ideas about it? How can we deliver patient centricity? I think there's a lot of truth in this last page that um, animated slide that Deepak has shown to us. And they, they said that it's difficult if, if uh, it's not so obvious for patients and the society what the data is being used for. So, um, and that's also something um, which uh, may, may be in, in, in the data that uh, Sarah has shown to us, uh, because on, the, on this one page, where genetic data came into play, I think there we saw relatively low figures. And I think it's relatively easy uh, as, a, as, a, as a person, as a patient, I would only share my genetic data if I know what for. Um, and interestingly enough, um, I was so honored to, to help Citra in, in the giving out a, a fair data prize for, for services in healthcare. And the winner was a service on genetic data uh, because uh, the interesting story was they really offered a clear benefit uh, to the patient. And at the same time, they established a very clear process where the patient knew exactly what, what they shared for what. So I think the patient centricity here has to, uh, 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 to do a lot with information. Um, or it, it is linked uh, strongly to, it, to, to, to uh, having information and seeing of what purpose it is happening. Right, great. And Deepak, what are your ideas? Okay, well, both of these two have given you a, a vision and a way forward, but every stakeholder has got to change. You said, how can we enable? That means the final missing ingredient is a big round table. All of the stakeholders need to come together around the table as equals to agree on how they want to achieve that vision because every stakeholder has to change the way they work. They've got to work more smartly, more collaboratively. You put the patient in the center by everybody changing, not just changing the patient. <laughs> so the round table is the secret ingredient. Yeah, thank you very much, collaboration. So thank you very much. We still have a, a long way to find uh, the right and fair balance between the interests of society as a whole, the individual, the economy, when it comes to digital health and in particular the, the use of health data. So I think this panel gave an important input to this discussion and I'm really grateful. Thank you very, very much to our speakers, Sarah, Stefan, Deepak, and many thanks to our audience. <laughs>